Acts chapter 11, we started last week with a comparison, basically actually a contrast of two churches. Noticing that in chapter 11, there are two churches listed and we see two different legacies left in these churches. Today we begin the passage in verse 19 of chapter 11. And we'll talk about the church in Antioch. It was a city much like modern day big cities. It was 300 miles north of Jerusalem, 20 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a thriving city. It was a, it was a big city. There were 500,000 people that populated that city, making it the third largest city in all of Syria. It was the capital then of Syria. And, and, and because of, of that, because of its, its population, it was a city that was a crossroads for three main highways, one coming from the south, one coming from the east, and one coming from the west. The capital city, it was very diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic. There were many different uh, uh, nationalities that called that city their home. There were Greeks, there were Romans, there were Hebrews, there were Arabs, there were Egyptians. There were Persians and Indians and Asians. It was a, it was a conglomeration of, of multi-ethnic cultures. It was a city that was known for its commerce. It was very prosperous. And at the same time, there was great poverty there. It was also known for its literature and its art. Very high society type of city. But what made the city infamous was its immorality. Its hedonism. Because there in Antioch was a shrine that was dedicated to the Greek nymph Daphne, where dozens of priestesses were available to its worshipers as ritual prostitutes. In fact, the name, the term, morals of, the morals of Daphne came to be known throughout the then known world as a euphemism speaking of the foulest kind of depravity. There's a city much like modern-day cities in America, much like L.A., Chicago, all the big cities, but also I would submit to you a lot of the smaller ones, including Madras, Oregon. And yet, here's the amazing thing about Antioch. In Antioch, a church rises up. And it is through the church in Antioch, not the mother church in Jerusalem, that God is going to use to change the entire world. Here, such a pagan city, and yet in that city, a church raises up that, that, that God uses mightily. And I have to ask the question, why? Why did God use that church and not the church in Jerusalem? And I think we began to answer that question last week when we talked about the church in Jerusalem. Last week, as we looked at the first 18 verses of chapter 11, we saw three factors that hinder the gospel ministry in a local church. 
See, we picked it up in verse 1 when Peter is on his way back to Jerusalem after having been in Caesarea. And in Caesarea, he watched in amazement God pouring out his grace upon believing Gentiles. Something that, that they would have never thought of. Something they would have never believed to be true. But here Peter is used of God. He shares the good news about Jesus. And these people come in faith in him. The Holy Spirit comes upon them just like as happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And Peter's on his way back to Jerusalem. And the church hears about what took place with these Gentiles. And they right away reveal what that church is all about. We saw three factors last week. We saw swift criticism The Scripture says, as soon as Peter got back there, they criticized him. That's what the Scripture says. They criticized him. And we said where there is a a group of people that are swift to criticize, the gospel ministry is hindered. But what did they criticize him for? They criticized him because they were also steeped in strict isolation. And they said, you went to an uncircumcised person? And not only that, you ate with them. See, they were, they were isolated. It was a us versus them mentality. Now, dear church, listen to me. I said it last week. There is an us and them that we need to recognize. There is a us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, given ourselves over to Jesus. And there is a them who we pray for and want to trust in Jesus Christ. It's not an us versus them. It's an us and them. And us better want them to join us. But see, that wasn't the case. It was an us versus them. Peter, how could you go and associate with them? There was this strict isolation. And it hindered the gospel ministry. And then we saw at the end of our passage last week in verse 18 that finally those who were there, they were quiet. They couldn't say anything else. Why? Because Peter had basically blamed God. He had said, God did all this. It was God's word. It was God's providence. It was God's grace poured out upon these Gentiles. That's how this all came about. It's God's fault, Peter's saying, not mine. So what could they say? Nothing. (laughs) Or else they'd put themselves in opposition to the Lord. And they even says they glorified God, saying now even the Gentiles can have a repentance that leads to life. They admitted that, but I would tell you this was an underlying skepticism. Because you know what continues to happen in that church? They continue to demand that any Gentile that came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior be circumcised and follow many of the other rituals that the Hebrews followed. And how do we know that? Because in Acts chapter 15, it comes to a head. They have this Jerusalem council. What do we do with Gentiles who are becoming saved? What do we do with them? And there were some who still from that church said they need to be circumcised and they need to follow all the other stuff. There was this underlining skepticism. Yeah, they can come to the Lord, but we're not sure about them. We're still going to kind of make them jump through our hoops. I've taken a lot of time to remember last week, but I kind of want to set the stage because today we get to look at the good church. Not that the Jerusalem is a bad church, but we get to look at a church that empowers the gospel ministry. The gospel ministry goes forth from this church, and as I said earlier, it is the church in Antioch and not the mother church in Jerusalem that God uses to change the entire world. 
And why is that? I want us to look at three factors, just like we looked at three factors last week of a gospel-hindering church. I want to look at three factors that, that empower the gospel ministry in the life of a church as we pick it up in verse 19. Three factors that empower the gospel ministry in a local church. Now, dear church, let me say this. As we do this, would you prayerfully prayerfully, prayerfully consider who we are as a church family? It is so easy to look at other people. It's so easy to look at other churches and say, well, they're not doing this, and they're not doing that, and shame, they should be doing You know what? Today, it's all about us. It's all about me. It's all about you. We need to ask the Lord, Lord, is this true of Cornerstone Baptist Church? And even more specifically, Lord, is this true of each member of Cornerstone Baptist Church? So what I'm asking is for us not to think about other people or other churches, but to ask the question, is this what our church looks like? This is a church that I want us to look like. I pray we would look like this church. I pray so. I'm going to let you know that right up front. As I think about this church in Antioch, I go, that's the church I want. That's the church I want to be a part of. A church that God uses to impact the world. That's the church I want to be a part of. And what are the three factors that that empowered the gospel ministry? Well, let's begin at verse 19. Follow along with me, will you please? Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that's Acts chapter 7. Remember Stephen, was he preached the gospel and he was put to death for it. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, that the, the uh, persecution started there in the church of Jerusalem. And as a result, many of the believers in Jerusalem were scattered. So they scattered in verse 18. And they traveled, it says, as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jewish people. So here we are, church in Jerusalem. They're sharing the gospel, which is awesome. Please don't hear us say anything negative about that. They're sharing the gospel. They're telling about Jesus Christ. The only thing is, is with that isolationism going on still, they were just keeping it for other Jewish people in that area. Now remember, this area is mostly pagan. So there were, there were Jews there, obviously, but not as many as when you get closer to Jerusalem. And so they were out, they were sharing Jesus Christ with other people of their same nationality, their same religion, and they're, they're telling them about Jesus. But notice it changes in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, Also preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I'm going to give you the first factor that I see here that empowers a local church ministry to do the gospel ministry is this. Culturally relevant evangelism. Culturally relevant evangelism evangelism. I'm just looking at some of your faces because I know what I've got to do right now. I've got to clear up what that means. Some of you are going, you're talking about watering down the gospel. Oops, sorry, I didn't mean that. It's a good thing nobody's sitting here. 
But some of you are thinking, is he talking about compromising the message of the gospel? Is that what he's saying? Thank you. That is not at all what I am saying, nor would I ever say that. And if I ever said that, you need to fire me right on the spot. We don't compromise the message of the gospel. I'm not saying compromise. I'm saying be culturally relevant in our evangelism. See, the message of the gospel stays the message of the gospel. What's the message of the gospel? It is simply this. If you, you, you can write this down or you can turn there with me, but the Apostle Paul says what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is. This is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It's right there in Scripture. Jesus came and He died on the cross. Why? Because we are sinners. You don't like to hear that? I'm sorry. That's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner apart from Jesus Christ. You're a sinner apart from Jesus Christ. We've got we to get used to that. It's true. So the gospel message is, if, if I come to it, it means I admit, I recognize, I realize, and I accept the fact that apart from Christ, I am a sinner. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ died for my sins. Christ died on the cross as that once and for all sacrifice so that I don't have to experience the penalty of sin, which the Bible says is death, eternal separation from God forever in hell. A place that was created for Satan and his cohorts now is also a place for those who refuse the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the gospel says, I'm a sinner and I deserve eternal separation from God. But Jesus came, died on the cross for my sin, in my place, as my substitutionary sacrifice. That's what the gospel says. But guess what? <laughs> Even though he was buried, he didn't stay there. He rose again on the third day. And it's proved by the fact that he's, uh, over 500 people witnessed his resurrection body after he rose from the dead, which is what Paul goes on to, to say there in 1 Corinthians 15. See, the message of the gospel remains the same. If we're going to take the gospel into this community, into this county, into this state, into our world, then what we need to recognize is everybody is a sinner and falls short of the glory of God and therefore deserves death. Jesus died for those sins on that cross as the once-for-all sacrifice. He rose again on the third day, proving He can forgive sin and give eternal life because He and He alone has conquered death, right? That's the message of the gospel. So will you admit? And then the finally is, will you believe who Jesus is and what He's done and receive Him as your personal Savior and give yourself over to Him? That's the gospel. I am not in any way today saying we water that down. Absolutely not. If anything, I think we neglect parts of the gospel, especially probably that first one, because it's, it's politically incorrect to call people sinners today. So I'm not saying we don't call people what the Bible says we all are. What I am saying, though, is we do it in a way that is culturally 
relevant. And you say, well, pastor, how did you get that out of this text? Good question. Good question. I want to show you. Notice who it is that talks to the people, the Greeks, the pagans there in Antioch. Who is it? Is it the people from Jerusalem? No. It's the people who came from Cyprus and Cyrene, which if you remember on the map, Cyprus is is an island just right off the the coast there and, and would have the same kind of culture, a knowledge of what that culture is like. It was much, much different than Jerusalem culture. The culture in Jerusalem was very religious. Jerusalem was the seat of all Jewish religion. The temple was there. It was very, very Jewish, if I could say it that way. Antioch was opposite of that. So it took people who understood the culture, who actually were from there, Cyprus and Cyrene, to go in in that culture and to start talking to those people who lived there who were not a part of the Jewish culture. It took them. Why? I'll give you two reasons. One, they comprehended the culture. They knew what the culture was like. They understood it. They grew up in it. They recognized it for all it was in its ugliness and in its beauty. They recognized the culture. They comprehended it. Dear church, I'm convinced that many churches don't do well in sharing the gospel because we don't comprehend our culture. Now be careful here. I'm going to step on toes again. But i got to tell you something. What, what really was effective even 20 years ago may not be as effective today. I was thinking about it. If you know anything on the history of Sunday school, you know that it began as an outreach, an evangelistic tool. Why? Because kids weren't learning how to read. And so Spurgeon said, I got this idea. Let's teach them how to read. He knew his culture. He knew what was necessary in that culture. And he brought them in on Sunday mornings to teach them how to read the Bible. And it was effective. It was amazing. And Sunday school was birthed. That's how it came to be. But I would tell you it's no longer that. I'm not saying anything against Sunday school. But what I'm saying is that evangelistic output that it had is no longer the case. You can't invite unsaved people in our culture to come on a Sunday morning early. Right? Sunday mornings are to sleep in, for crying out loud. See, we need to know our culture. The message remains the same, but our method needs to change with our culture. Why do I say that? Another passage I would take you to is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. The Apostle Paul talks about being with Jewish people. And when he's with Jews, he becomes a Jew. He's, he, 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 he participates as a Jew. When he's with Non-Jewish people, he participates with them as non-Jewish. He recognizes his culture. But why does he do that? To share the gospel. I've become all things to all men that I might win some with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul recognized methods are going to change. The message does not change. Hear me. The message does not change. But the way in which we take that message to our culture must change. Be relevant to the culture. 
I'm so glad I'm leaving for three months because I can just imagine the lineup of people that want to talk to me now. I hope you're understanding what I'm saying. This is a culturally relevant message. See, they comprehended the culture in which they lived, but notice when they share the gospel, notice what it says. I've got to get back there. In, in Acts chapter 11, notice verse 20 at the end. They preached what? The Lord Jesus. Don't miss that. Why didn't they preach Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah? I'll tell you why. That wouldn't have computed to a pagan world. Sure, certainly Jewish, would, Jewish people would understand what Messiah is all about. They would understand, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. But you try to tell people who weren't raised that way, they'd be like, so? I, I don't even know what Messiah means, let alone Jesus is Messiah. No, they preached the Lord Jesus. They said He is Lord. Now, they, it's true. He's Messiah. But He's also Lord. And they recognized their culture would not understand what Messiah meant, and so they preached Him as Lord, as Master, as the one to whom we have to deal with. The one who has authority. Amen. And they preached Him in a, in a way that related to that culture. And so I'm just telling us, dear church, if we want to be an, a church that is empowered with the gospel ministry into this community, we need to comprehend our culture, but we also need to share then the gospel in a comprehensible way. In a way that's going to speak. Again, not compromising. Please don't. I, I feel like I have to keep making sure you understand. I'm not saying compromising the message. I'm saying, but we do it in a way where the culture goes, oh, I get it. I understand what you're talking about. I hear it. I, I, I recognize what you're saying. See, that's what they did. So I'm saying the first factor in a, in a church that is empowered in the gospel ministry it is this culturally relevant evangelism that takes place. But notice what happens. As they do, what takes place? Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them. Dear church, don't miss it. This is the bottom line. If the hand of the Lord is not on the messenger, then nothing happens. It is all about Him doing His work. Years ago, when Mona and I were first getting started, we took an evangelism class. And I have never forgotten the definition of evangelism that was given to us. Evangelism is simply taking the initiative to share Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and letting God do His work, leaving the results with God. It's simply taking initiative to share Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results with God. If God is not at work, it ain't going to happen. See, these people shared in a culturally relevant way the good news of Jesus Christ. And guess what happened? God did His work. And people came, and notice what it says, they turned to the Lord. Did you know that's a description of repentance? Repentance is turning away from and turning to. They turned to the Lord. They didn't talk about Jesus as Messiah, but that's okay. They understood Jesus as Lord. And they turned from their ways to the Lord because the Lord's hand was all over this. His hand was all over this. See, when we 
speak to our culture in a way that relates to our culture, the truth of the gospel, God will work. We leave the results with him. One more thing I want to point out before I go on to point number two, and I'm not going to take this long on the other points, okay? Promise. I just want to make sure you understand what I'm saying here. But, the, but, but, but notice, who are these people? Here's another just amazing, this is a freebie for you. This is an amazing thing. It's not Peter that starts this church. It's not Paul that starts this church. It's not any of the other apostles that starts this church. Who starts the church? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know their names. This important, powerful church that was empowered in the gospel ministry was started by a bunch of no-names. They're not listed for us anywhere. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like the gospel is center here. The gospel is key. Not the people who are sharing it, but the gospel. Jesus Christ, who works in and through the gospel, He's the one that's focused on here. Now that's a side note. You can do more study on that on your own. But nonetheless, the first factor that I want to see, I want to reveal to us that, that enables this or empowers this church in the gospel ministry is culturally relevant evangelism. Have I nailed that in enough? You understand what I'm not saying, right? I'm not talking about compromise or watering down. I'm just talking about doing it in a way that relates to the culture in which we live. So the second factor, let's go on. The second factor in verse 22, notice this. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And right away, based on what we saw in Jerusalem, we could be thinking, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Because the bottom line is this, dear church. If you send the wrong guy from Jerusalem into Antioch, it could kill the life that's going on there. If you send the wrong person who goes in and wants to make the church in Antioch just like the church in Jerusalem, it could be done and over with right then and there. So news gets to the church of Jerusalem and they seek the Lord and they listen to the Holy Spirit and look what happens. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas goes, Thank you, Lord! We know Barnabas. Actually, he was first introduced to us as Joseph. Remember, that's his real name, Joseph. But he give, is given this name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. It's a nickname given to him by the apostles. Because in Acts chapter 4, he sells a plot of land. He's from Cyprus, as we're going to see in a moment. He's from Cyprus. He sells a plot of land, and he brings the whole entire money from that plot to the feet of the apostles there in Jerusalem. And he continues to be this guy that is seen as, as a son of encouragement. He's encouragement. And how wise, how wonderful it is that the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas into Antioch. Because what we see next is a second factor. And I'm going to put it to you right now. The second factor that I see here is encouraging discipleship. Encouraging discipleship takes place now. Barnabas goes up into Antioch. And there are two choices he has. Two choices that each of us have. Now, we have talked about discipleship being very, very important in the life of a church. But in discipleship, it can go one of two ways. I'll just, these are very, I'm doing two extremes here. But we can come in to discipling a, a new believer with one of two ways. We can either come in saying, I'm going to point out all the things that they're doing wrong. 
You are a Christian. You should no longer do this. You shouldn't do that. Don't be doing this. No, don't say that. No, wait, wait. You did what? You drank what? No, don't. You... And, and we can approach discipleship as it's my goal to tell this new believer what they're not supposed to do. Or we can go over here and we can focus on the positive. Praise God for what He has done in your life. Oh, the grace that He has poured out upon you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He has given you a gift. Let's go for it. Let's do this thing. Let's be encouraging. You have two choices in discipleship. Well, being the son of encouragement, what does Barnabas do? Notice verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. I love it. Church, now stop and think with me for a moment. I've heard stories of old people who come to Christ and right away their alcoholism is gone. Or they no longer have any desire to smoke. But dear church, that doesn't happen all the time. I can testify to that. That does not happen all the time. Even after someone comes to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they are truly born again. They're a new Christian, a creation in Christ, but they still wrestle with the old ways. And occasionally they'll say words that we wouldn't normally say in church. Or occasionally they might slip back in and, and, and drink a whole lot of alcohol overabundantly. Or they might do the, some of the things that they used to do uh, sexually. Whatever it might be, they still have this old nature that is within them. And dear church, that's what I say. We could focus on that and say, no, 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 don't, 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 don't. Or we could have this mindset. The Holy Spirit lives in them. He will convict them. He will work in His day and in His time. Certainly, we need to make those things understood by them. But dear church, if that's all we do, we're in trouble. Barnabas goes in, and what does he do? He sees the grace of God. These people are saved. Praise God. I don't know. I don't care what their lifestyle might still be. But praise the Lord, they have Jesus Christ as their Savior. And he is glad over the grace of God. So encouraging discipleship focuses in on the grace of God. God has done this incredible work in you. Do you realize this? And this is an encouragement. But he goes on, and he, and he asks them to focus now on faithfulness to the Lord. Notice what he says. Verse 23, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he did exhort them, but he didn't exhort them to stop, stop, stop. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He exalted Jesus in their life. He is saying, listen guys, here's what you need to focus on. Not stopping all this, but you need to focus on your faith in Christ, on your love for Christ. You need to focus on drawing closer to Jesus because I believe Barnabas recognizes that when we fall more and more in love with Jesus, we will hate and hate and hate our sin more. Are you with me? When we love Jesus with everything we've got and that continues to grow in us, we will see the things that we shouldn't be doing and it'll be a naturally ugh in our lives. And so Barnabas doesn't say, stop, stop, stop. 
He says, no, be faithful in your relationship with Jesus. Focus on the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord. And be sincere, steadfast in your purpose in doing this. This is encouraging discipleship. It not only focuses on God's grace, but it focuses on faithfulness to the Lord. And then finally, I want you to see as Barnabas does this thing, he, he, he encourages even further because what we see happens is amazing. Verse 24, For Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, which is what he is described as in Acts chapter uh, uh, 4. And then it says, And great many people were added to the Lord. Here's a problem. Here's Barnabas, one leader there in the church in Antioch. What's he going to do? There's already been a number of people who have come to Christ. He's trying to encourage them in discipling them. He's trying to help them. But even more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's just one man. What's he going to do? He needs help. Where's he going to get help? From somebody that you wouldn't expect, at least if you were living in that day. Notice what the Scripture says. So Barnabas went to Tarsus looking for who? Saul? Sorry, that was a weird voice. He went to Tarsus looking for Saul? Doesn't he know that Saul persecuted the church? Doesn't he know that even though he's been saved for a while now, he still has a reputation as a church persecutor? Why in the world would you go get Saul and bring him back to a church and ask him to help you leading a church? It sounds ridiculous, but see, this is the third point of encouraging discipleship. He focuses on the potential that people have. He focuses in on the potential of others. Yes, Saul has a reputation. It hasn't been very good prior to this point. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, wants to encourage not just the people in the church, but he's going to encourage Saul as he goes to to find Saul and bring him back into this new church. And notice what happens. And when he found him, verse 26, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You and I take that name for advantage today. You and I don't think much about calling each other Christians. Oh, you're just a Christian. Are you a Christian? No, I'm not. Are you a Christian? Christian, Christian. And we talk about Christians. In fact, I would tell you, I, I almost hate to use the term Christian today. Because it really doesn't mean much in this culture. I tend to use the word Christ follower or disciples of Jesus. That speaks a little bit more because Christian has been watered down. But in that day, they were first called Christians in Antioch. You know what that means? Literally, little Christs. You are so much like the one you are following that you become called little Christs. You are little followers of Jesus. You are the ones who show Him in every day that you live. You are little Christs. That's where they were first called. And notice the Scripture gives us this recognition that it wasn't the church that made up that name. It was the city, the town in which they lived. It was they who called that church Christians. But notice what happened. It's because... 
Paul, or Saul rather, at this time his name is still Saul, Barnabas and Saul meet with this group of people and they teach them for a whole year. Discipleship. And I'm going to tell you, it was an encouraging discipleship. So much, they fell so much in love with the Lord Jesus that they lived like Jesus. They were called little Christs. Amazing. Amazing. See, when encouraging discipleship is happening in the life of a local church, the gospel flourishes. It just is a natural outpouring. When it is discouraging discipleship that says you shall not, you shall not, do not, do not, do not, don't, nope, don't, guess what? Shrivels up. Encouraging discipleship, the second factor. And the final factor I need to zip through real quick. Sorry, I'm, <clears throat> I'm almost going on sabbatical, so I'm just kind of relaxing and I'm talking a lot. Sorry. Oh, so as we get into the last part of this section, I want you to see the third factor is sacrificial giving. Because something amazing happens at the end of this chapter. Verse 27, Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Let me set the stage here for you. This is probably some three, maybe four years prior to the famine breaking out. Now, notice where these prophets are from. Jerusalem. Notice what they're foretelling is going to happen in that area of Jerusalem, in Judea. A famine. Okay? So these are people from 300 miles away. They're coming in and they're proclaiming themselves to be prophets and they're saying a great famine is going to happen in several years from now. What do you do? Oh, you, I can't believe it. You'd be, are you wanting money? You're just serving yourself. You're coming and you're pretending like the Lord has said this and you just want my money, right? Does it remind you of <clears throat> some preachers maybe on television? I shouldn't use the word preacher. Sorry. They just want your money. And it could have easily been seen that these prophets from Jerusalem coming up to Antioch and saying, guess what? We're going to be in a heap of trouble in a few years from now. There's a famine. God has told us a famine is coming. And they had an opportunity to say, you're lying. You just want my money. Remember, this was a thriving place. What did they do? They believed them to be prophets. And Luke tells us this actually took place in about... 45 A.D., famine broke out in, in Egypt first, and then it had an effect in Judea, and it was horrible. It was a big famine. And so they're three or four years prior to that, and they believed the prophets. Look at verse 29. So the disciples determined, every one of them according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas, and Saul, I want you to see two sacrifices being made here on the church's part. Number one, each disciple in that church, each follower of Jesus Christ, each Christian in that group of people gave. Gave. They gave. They gave. Sacrificially so. 
They, they gathered everything up and, and, they, and they brought it together to the leadership of that church. They gave. But notice the end of that verse. They not only gave their resource, but notice they gave their leaders. Who went up to Jerusalem? It was Barnabas and Saul, the two guys that for a year had been teaching them, the two guys that they'd come to rely upon as those who would help them know more and more about Jesus. So they not only sacrificed their own resources, but they sacrificed, and this sounds weird, their leadership. And by that, I hope you don't have pictures of them putting them on an altar and, you know, killing them, sacrificing but they gave them up. They allowed them to travel 300 miles. And it, didn't, it wasn't just by car. It was walking. It took a long time. And they just willingly sent this stuff with their two leaders. So, so let me kind of bring this around. I just want to thank you, this church family, for your sacrificial giving. And, and I want to share more of this next week as it's our last week before we take off for three months on Sabbath rest. But I want you to know, I, I see a parallel here with our church family. I know there are some of you in this church that have, that have given of your resource so that Mona and I could have this Sabbath rest time. I, I recognize that and I want you to know <laughs> I'm getting choked up because it means so much to Mona and I. It is, it is amazing. We are, we are overwhelmed by this. And I know, I know for some, this is a weird thing. This is, this, I don't get this in my job, so why does Jeff and Mona get this? And I know some of you are, are, might even still be struggling. I don't know, but I just need you to know how much it has meant to us. The, 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 the funds, the resources that have come in for this, oh my goodness. I had no, I, I honestly did not think that would be the case. And so I just want you to know how much that means to Mona and I. And I know as I've talked to some of you, some of you have said, I don't know what we're going to do for three months without you. And my response is, you'd probably be way better off. <laughs> but I know that even in that, thinking that way, I know that it's a sacrifice on your part to say, Jeff, be gone for three months. And there might be still something in you going, but what's going to happen here? What's going, to, what's going to happen? What's going to take place? I know there's sacrifice. I know you're making sacrifice. And please know it's not lost on Mona and I. Please know that. We are, we are very, very grateful for this opportunity. And I want to share with you next week our prayers for this time away and, and, and what we would ask you to pray for and I want to share with you what I envision happening, not just with us, but with this church family as well while we're gone. But I just have to stop because this church, they sacrificed not only their resources, but they even gave up their leadership for a time so that they could go serve in Jerusalem. And I want you to know you're doing that. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. Have I gone on enough? You're going to hear more next week. So I'll stop now. But here's the bottom line for this morning, if I could come back. The bottom line is this. 
this church, Cornerstone Baptist Church, has an incredible legacy. I believe it wholeheartedly. This church has been used of God in many, many ways. People are in ministry today because of this church. People have a strong testimony in this community because of this church family. But dear church, we cannot rest on our laurels. Did you hear me? We don't want to settle for the legacy that we have. We want to move forward for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? We don't want to settle and say, remember the good old days? We want to say, the good old days are still on their way. We don't want to say, remember how many people came to know Christ X number of years ago? We want to say, look at what God's doing. Look at how many people are coming to Christ. Look how much discipleship has taken place. Look how many people are giving themselves over to Jesus. That's what we want. We cannot rest on our laurels. We cannot just say, we've got a great legacy. One of our elders, I won't use his name, Jack. Um, when he ends his emails to any leadership, he uses these words, moving forward. I love it. And if we want to move forward, let's cultivate culturally relevant evangelism. Let's cultivate encouraging discipleship. And let's cultivate sacrificial giving. And I tell you, the gospel will just blow up out of this place. We will explode with the gospel from Cornerstone Baptist Church. Will you pray with me?